Today's scripture comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 5 through 29. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? For leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters 
being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for that reading. It was the longest one in the history of this church, I think. But tomorrow's a holiday, so I knew you could handle it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible passage, the drama that is true, uh, that was not only for the Israelites, but that is for us who have been baptized into Christ. Uh, We thank you that uh, he passed through the waters of judgment for us, that he rose to eternal life for us. And so that we pray, God, we would trust in you and fear not as we face our battles and our threats. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was a sophomore in high school, I walked down the street from our house, as I would every day, uh, down to the back gates of Hoover High School, where I would enter and walk down a long ramp going through the football field and the track to get to school. And one day I was walking, about to walk in, and a a menacing-looking guy races up on his motorcycle And he stops, and he shouts, and he points at me, and he says, hey, you, were you at that party last night? And I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, first of all, I don't party, and I didn't meet this guy at Bible study. He wasn't there. And I realized this was a case of mistaken identity, and unfortunately, I looked just like a guy that he wanted to settle a score with. So I kind of started to review my options. Well, the first was I could have fought the guy. He was, though, 22 and fierce looking. I was about 15, and Christians don't take that route anyway. (laughs) And then I looked down either side of the sidewalk, and I thought, well, I could run either direction, but I'm not going to outrun his motorcycle. But then I realized, I bet you I can outrun him. I was a fast kid, so... I'm looking at the ramp, but he's revving up his engine this whole time, just kind of looking at me, and then he finally takes off when I told him, no, it was not me at the party. My heart is racing even now as I retell the story. And it's interesting because this is really, as I was racking my brain, this is the only time in my life that I can remember a physical threat from which I had to escape. Okay, once Liz and I were were in a fight and I had to run away. No, 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 just kidding, just kidding. Uh, But it's interesting how we here in the West don't tend to face the the kind of dramatic uh, intensity that people in this passage face and that so many people, so many Christians around the world have faced and face even now. However, there are other ways that we can relate to this passage. You may have known the experience of needing to escape, needing to break away from an emotionally abusive relationship in which you were demeaned. Or perhaps it's this experience of day by day walking in the freedom of sobriety as you you walk away from addiction to um, life-altering substances. In our passage, though, what we find is it relates to all of us. 
But we also see that Exodus is not a puzzle that we solve by using our ingenuity and trying to get out of what is so common now, escape rooms that people pay to go into to try to figure out their way, right? Figure their way out. But this is not about our ingenuity. It is about the power and the mercy of God to bring us through, to bring us through an impossible passageway. And so what we're going to do here simply is look at the story. We're going to walk through it. There are some details that we can't cover today, but we're going to consider this as the waters of emancipation and that God frees us from our worst tyrannies that would otherwise enslave us. It was deliverance, the formative event of deliverance for Israel, but it's also a uh, story of formative deliverance for us who are in Jesus. So let's walk through it. God had said in earlier chapters, and we find it played out in this chapter, he had said to Pharaoh, let my people go, or as some Jewish commentators have said, actually send my people out. And they were to go out into the wilderness to be freed from Egypt's tyranny, but that meant freed for worship. And that is always the twin aspect of emancipation. Freed from, but ultimately freed for God. And so earlier in chapter 13, verse 17, we're told that when God led them out of Egypt, he did not have them take the route along the coastline, but he sent them into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. For, God said, if they face war, that is, with the Egyptian garrisons, but also the Philistines who were, uh, had stations along that route along the sea, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So, therefore, God led the people around by the desert ro- uh, road toward the Red Sea. Now, this teaches us, friends, that sometimes God chooses for us the road least expected, and it's sometimes the hard road. And one of the reasons he does that, again, is that he doesn't want us to magnify human ingenuity, but his own power and mercy to save, sometimes through the most impossible situations, through the route that just seems absurd. And what is the ultimate expression of this? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross is foolishness and weakness to those who are perishing, like the Egyptians. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God to save. It is the road of redemption, though it seems so absurd to those who were viewing it uh, as Jesus was put on the cross. Well, back in chapter 13, Moses said to the people, uh, with a strong hand, you are going out. And it was not ultimately his hand, of course, but the Lord's. It was the hand of God who alone could deliver them. Now, we've been seeing throughout Exodus that, that Pharaoh is this kind of Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character. One moment he's saying, let them go. At the next moment he's saying, no, they must stay. And at his heart, Pharaoh kind of epitomizes 
human rebellion against God. He redefines good and evil by his own whims and by his own standards. And we're told throughout that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but also then it will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's this interplay. God is orchestrating Pharaoh's rebellion and leaving Pharaoh, as it were, to his own tendencies, increasing what was already there, this kind of God defiance. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. And that's what God is doing with Pharaoh, turning himself over to his own autonomy and his own depravity. And a point that really goes throughout this entire passage is that God's glory is shown not only in salvation, not only in bringing people through a perilous path, but God's glory is also shown in judgment. And friends, the human soul cries out for this. We cry out for wrongs to be righted and for unrepentant evil to be dealt with. And so God's glory is shown through judgment as well. And you see, by the 10th plague, and we heard about some of the plagues last week, Pharaoh just said, you know, get them out of here. He couldn't banish them out of his kingdom fast enough. But while the Israelites were fleeing, Pharaoh flipped again. And then he says, why would we let them go from serving us? Now, it's almost like he's modifying and softening. You know, it's almost like he's viewing them here as their neighborhood baristas that aren't going to serve them coffee any, anymore. But what Pharaoh is really saying is we won't let our slaves and the cheap slave labor we get from the Israelites, we don't want to let them go. Well, the passage tells us that God led the Israelites by fire at night and a cloud by day, a cloud that moved from the back to the front. And this is a glory cloud. It signifies the awesome presence of God in being with his people. It's the glory cloud that filled later the temple when the people would come in to worship God. And so God is leading the people through and by this cloud, and Moses is God's agent as he leads them. But it seems that Moses led them to a dead end. He takes them, God takes them through Moses to the Red Sea, what is sometimes called the, the Reed Sea. And again, through this, God is the great orchestrator. He is beginning to use even Egyptian rage against themselves, luring them to their doom and luring the Israelites to an awesome display of God's mercy. Now, it's interesting that at the beginning of their adventure, Israel was excited. And, and that's so often the way we are in our journey of faith, right? We're told in verse 8 that they go out defiantly. It's like a, a military march for them, but that changes really quickly when they start to see what they're up against. 
the Egyptians pursue them, and the Israelites look and see a menacing army with advanced technology. The chariots of Egypt are mentioned again and again and again. 600 of them officially, but then more chariots in the land, all of which had soldiers riding on them. And I was thinking about it this week. It was not only an intimidating sight, but imagine the sound. Imagine the sound of the wheels and the thunderous horses, the gallops, and they're moving toward the Israelites. It reminds me a little bit of, if you've seen the movie Dunkirk, the, the scattered allied troops who are running through the city toward the beaches uh, fearing that they're about to be annihilated by the Nazi troops. And by the way, one of the ways that we can better understand this passage is the Egyptians led by Pharaoh are really um, uh, the Nazis in advance, aiming to subjugate and then destroy the Jewish people. And so once uh, the, the Israelites had been emboldened, but now we're told they're afraid and then they become embittered. Their faith waned, and the people complained to their leader, why didn't you just leave us back in Egypt? And notice where cynicism starts to come in when we're afraid. Didn't Egypt have enough graves for us? See, friends, when we start to lose our faith in God, we become embittered, we get cynical, we become overly sarcastic. And notice also that it's so easy to long even for oppression and bondage and bad habits, if you want to think of it that way. Why? Because at least we know those things. At least they're comfortable. So they say, let's go back to Egypt, and they'll keep replaying that refrain, uh, complaining to Moses uh, in the future. But what does God tell Moses to say to them? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And boy, if we ever had a plaque over our lives, that would be it, friends. It's been said that fear not is one of the most common frequent statements, some variation of that, in all of the scripture. And we need this. We need it. The doctor would like to meet with you about the test results. And we need to hear, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You're in a relationship or, or your boss says to you, uh, we've got to talk on Monday. And you need to tell yourself, don't be afraid, stand firm and watch the salvation, the work of God for you today. You see, when we're facing trials and we are afraid, and there's a threat coming against us, whether small or great, and it's bearing down, and we're in the shadow of that ominous threat, we need to say with the psalmist, Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Uh, many of you know that I've had a lifelong kidney disease. I, I've been getting some good reports lately, and I'm thrilled. 
I'll take it, 20% functioning, amen. But in the midst of all this, some of you don't know that around Thanksgiving, uh, I, I get all of these tests, uh, many, many tests. And I got an ultrasound, go figure. And uh, they have to check everything. And I was driving home, and if you know what my chart is, all your records, all, all the test scores come up before the doctor calls. And I'm driving home, I'm somewhere on Alicia Boulevard, and in the test it said, uh, possible liver cirrhosis, suggested liver cirrhosis. Well, many of you know what that means. It means your liver's in trouble. And of course, I did the thing you shouldn't do. I started researching like crazy online and came up with all the worst scenarios. And I began to get frustrated because I thought, you know, I, I'm not a heavy drinker. I take care of myself, all these things. Uh, my kidney doctor said, well, this is strange. Your numbers are good, but we need to run more tests. I saw another specialist. I had three more specialized blood tests, a more specific ultrasound up at St. Joseph's Hospital. Again, I was driving home. My chart, the numbers came up just about three weeks ago, and it measured my stiffness. They give you four levels, and my heart started racing. And I had to think of this verse, fear not, stand strong and see the Lord's salvation. Well, my stiffness is normal. <laughs> and then I got home, and by the time I got there, there was a note from the doctor on my chart that said, that's all good. And I thought, okay, I, one less problem I have to worry about. It turns out all my numbers are normal, but my, I guess my liver just looks weird. So no comments about that at the door today. But friends, when threats um, are potential or they're actual, we need this plaque over our lives. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord because sometimes the tests don't go the way we want. The conversations don't go the way we had hoped. Situations go south on us. Well, continuing with the story in verse 16, God told Moses to lift his rod or the staff and to hold out his arm over the sea. This is the work of the Lord through Moses, not Moses himself. And different translations say the waters divided, they were split so that the Israelites would march through the sea on dry ground. Now notice, the, the Israelites had to stand and see the salvation of their Lord, but they still had to walk, and I think it was speed walking at this point. And even though we have to stand and wait upon the Lord, we still have to walk forward, don't we? We can't be passive. Well, as they walk forward, they are brought through that passageway. And we're told that Moses raised his staff and God sent an east wind that pushed the waters apart. And it formed basically two walls. And we can only imagine what it was like for them to walk through. Now, one commentator, actually a Jewish commentator, I think this was an insightful point, he said... God used the winds perhaps to show that God controls nature. Nature is not a God. And that's what so many of the Egyptian men, the, the people of that region thought at the time. right? They, they worshipped nature. They thought they could appease the gods of nature, but this is saying, no, God controls nature. And the land, the sea was dry enough again for the Israelites all to pass through. Can you imagine 
their shock and their awe and their wonder and their happiness. Who is this Moses? Who is our God? God can do anything. And friends, we need to think that way. Well, we're told that once the Israelites had passed through the gauntlet, which God had miraculously changed for them into a road of redemption and release, well, we're told that it became a road of perdition for their pursuers and persecutors. Moses again lifted up his rod at God's command, lifted up his hand, and God clogged the wheels of those chariots. And we're told about their chariots again and again. It's as if God is saying, don't trust your Teslas to give you life, friends. Don't trust the, the technology of this life to give you life. And the Egyptians turned tail, and then they said, not to the Israelites, let them flee, but let us flee. Notice the flip. And so Moses lifted his staff, and it's much more dramatic than this, but the waters returned, swallowing up the enraged Egyptian armies in a watery grave. And we're told that the Israelites saw the bodies of their persecutors on the shores. Again, God is glorified in salvation, but he is also glorified in judgment. And it's so, so often in the West that there's this sort of, well, everyone's good and basically good, and we don't like this idea that God judges. But I once heard a Jewish commentator say, if Nazi Germany isn't dealt with in eternity, then this life is meaningless. It makes no sense. Wrongs have to be righted. And in that straightening things out, God is glorified. Well, this story, this greatest event really in the history of Israel, it is replayed, it is recapitulated, it has levels and, uh, of, or, and horizons of fulfillment throughout Israel's history. For, a, for example, in Joshua 3 later, they will cross the Jordan and God will part those waters. But friends, this account ultimately powerfully paves the way for Jesus, who is the ultimate focal point of the Exodus. You see, Jesus replays the history of Israel as the perfect Israelite. In Matthew 2, we're told to flee not Pharaoh's wrath, but Herod. Jesus and his family have to flee down into Egypt. And then... God calls them back out of Egypt, just as we're told he does in the book of Hosea, calling his son out of Egypt. You see, Jesus is the perfect, full son of God. But Jesus is also the new Moses, and he is leading us. He delivers his people from a kingdom of sin and death and separation from God. Friends, he frees us from a tyranny that is worse than Pharaoh's. He frees us from Satan's reign over the present world order of rebellion against God. This is what Ephesians 2 teaches. God says in Colossians 2, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, the new Pharaohs, the ultimate Pharaohs, 
the ultimate pharaoh of Satan. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is in Christ. And again, this is not just something that is uh, a connection that preachers make up. When Jesus was transfigured in Luke 9, when he went up onto the mountaintop and his glory was shown, greater than the glory cloud, he was shown as the true Son of God. Moses and Elijah appeared with him and Jesus, we're told, spoke of his departure. And you read that in the English and that just, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But the Greek word for departure is Jesus speaking about his Exodus. It is speaking about his death and his resurrection. And you see, friends, while Moses, as the appointed deliverer of God, stretched out his hand over the sea to bring salvation to God's people, Jesus stretched his hands out on the cross so that we might be delivered from sin and death and the power of Satan. You see, Jesus was drowned, as it were, under the judgment of God, and he passed through that gauntlet, through the walls of death, if you will, to appear on the other side in resurrection glory for us. And again, the New Testament makes this clear. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our deliverer into whom we are baptized and joined, and we, we pass through these things with him. Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-2, to the Christians who were struggling with their own temptations and the per- persecution of the world and the tyranny of Satan that was try- who was trying to pull them back into a life of sin, Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the glory cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Well, see, we are baptized into the greater Moses. We have a greater baptism. And Jesus is the only mediator who can finally deliver any and all of us. You see, friends, looking at this as a whole, the Bible is the story of God intervening to bring his people out of a foreign land of sin and death and the tyranny of the devil and to bring us back to the chosen land, to the new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, but even back to Eden to a renewed creation. You see, that's what the Israelites were passing through and toward, but that is our ultimate passageway in Christ. And so you are not just free from the tyranny of the devil, but for a life lived joyfully unto God. But alas, freedom is a tough thing to maintain, isn't it? Paul says in Galatians 6, for freedom Christ has set you free Now do not once again submit to a yoke of slavery. I remember the song by Keith Green when I was in high school. So you want to go back to Egypt? (laughs) And that was a good reminder for me as a believer, a young believer. No, I don't want to go back to Egypt, but sometimes I do. 
And so what are those things that uh, threaten to re-enslave you? What are the worst traits that you need to escape in the power of Christ? If you're unsure, ask your spouse. (laughs) Spouses, be nice. Is it too much sarcasm and condescension born of a kind of hopelessness that the Israelites were, were expressing as the Pharaoh and his army were approaching? Is it too much self-inflation and trusting in the chariots of this life, as it were? Is it your pride? Or friends, is it the flip side of egocentricity, too much self-pity and too much discouragement? You see, we need to say, because I have passed through the waters of judgment, I am justified, I am made right, and I belong to the Lord. And I can change my perspective. I am not enslaved to negative thought patterns. I am joyfully liberated from the shackles of my sin and this fallen age. Friends, tell yourself not to go back to it. Tell yourself that you've been baptized into Jesus, that you have passed through the waters with him, and you have been raised to new life to live for him. The prophet Isaiah said, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. They swept over Christ on the cross, and therefore we can handle any trial and any temptation that we go through. And friends, I know some of them are real. Some of them are bearing down on you even this week. Well, fear not. Stand still. Walk forward and watch for the salvation of your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this dramatic, exciting, palpable, thrilling story, the formative story of Israel's formation and deliverance, but also it's our story. And so, God, I pray that as we head into this week and continue in our discipleship, that you would help us to see that this is not just an ancient account, but it's current, it's relevant, it's ours in Christ. We thank you that as Moses lifted up his arm as you commanded over the seas and you used powerful winds to create a a passageway of redemption, so Christ lifted up his hands upon the cross. We thank you that he walked through the waters of judgment as it were, that he was drowned under your wrath because you love us so much. We know that evil had to be dealt with and that's not just the the evil of Pharaoh and the world, but our evil, our rebellion, our autonomy, our stupidity, our tendency to trust in chariots, our tendency to fear the things of this world and to lose sight of you. We needed Christ to go through it all for us. And Father, we thank you that he did and that we are baptized into his death, 
but also raised to new life in him. We thank you that you have brought us not merely out of slavery to sin, but into the promised land, a new Eden, a new creation. God, as we await the final consummation of, of what that is and who we are in Christ, help us. Because we are afraid sometimes. The tests come through, the relationships break. Uh, we struggle with depression or anxiety or our finances and our worry about those things. God, we, we confess this and we pray that you would help us as we pass through the waters to know that they won't consume us because Christ was consumed and he was raised victorious for us forevermore. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.